So, a few years ago, I was standing in the checkout line at the Publix near my house. I'm there a lot. One of my friends from Publix is here. She knows I'm there a lot, a lot. Anyway, what I usually do is I'll, I'll go in there sometime in the afternoon, sometimes I go in right after the gym. I usually have my noise-canceling headphones in, so I'm kind of in my own world. So I was standing in the line, and I had my noise-canceling earbuds in, listening to Christian music, by the way. That's a life hack, I want you to know. If you find yourself waking up grouchy, or you find yourself going throughout the day just going, rah, I can't believe the world, rah, rah, rah. Listen to more Christian music. It's really hard to be grumpy when you're listening to praise and worship. It really is. So anyway, I was kind of in my own world. Kind of had my head down. But after a bit, I noticed this couple in front of me. The woman was smallish. She was about five feet tall. So where's five feet? My hair about. She had a bunch of really interesting tattoos. A bunch of different kind of piercings, dermals, stuff like that. But she, she was quiet. She kind of kept her head down. It looked to me, and I like to assess people when I'm looking at them, it looked to me like she was avoiding making eye contact with anyone, like really to herself. And she was with a guy. And the way I would describe this guy was intense. He was an intense guy. He was at least six foot five. I'm six feet tall. I just was looking up at the guy. Completely shaved head. All tatted up, double sleeves. He looked stern. He looked, he looked irritated. He, he, looked, he looked mad, annoyed. Like somebody wasn't interested in talking to anyone or having anyone talk to him. So, naturally, <clears throat> challenge accepted, right? So I struck up a conversation. And I put out my hand. I said, dude. Your vibe is awesome. And he goes, all right. He shakes my hand, you know, very hesitantly. And I said, so, where do you go to church? I always ask people, where do you go to church? I don't ask them, do you go to church? I think I learned that in some sales seminar somewhere. It's like the presumptive close, okay? So, where do you go to church? And he was really irritated by my question, so he grunted, I don't go to church, I'm Jewish. By the way, I'm pretty good at telling who my people are. I totally whiffed on this one. I could never have guessed with this guy. And I said to him, oh, cool. <laughs> so am I, brother. <laughs> by the way, you want to have some fun? When you invite people to church in town, if they answer you that way, please use me as your example. Oh, so is our pastor. When will you come? Can I pick you up? Anyway. Now, I think that threw him for a second. Like, he, he, he couldn't make heads or tails of that, and maybe you understand why. But then I said, you look like a person who would love our church. I said, would you come visit us? One Sunday, and I reached in my wallet, and I handed him one of our invitation cards. By the way, if you don't carry around invitation cards, please consider starting to carry around invitation cards. I've got plenty of them for you. They're out there on the table in the lobby. It's so good to have them. So I gave him an invitation card, 
And he didn't look annoyed anymore. He didn't look so severe anymore. He softened a little bit, but he did look a little confused, a little perplexed. And he grunted again to me. He says, I don't think you want me coming to your church. I'm not a very good person. I don't like to follow rules. And I don't like to conform to anything. I don't like people telling me how to dress. And I don't like people telling me how to behave. But thanks anyway for the invitation. Okay. I said, no problem. Please keep the invitation if you ever change your mind. I said, I'd love to introduce you to our community. I said, because they'll love you. I said, we have the best people in town. And I truly, guys, I really believe that. I tell everybody. And with that, he kind of shifted his focus away from the weirdo who was talking to him, it was me, of course, to the cashier. And then he and the woman, woman with him kind of grabbed their grocery bags from the rack and they started out the door. And he reached the door ahead of her. He's 6'5", she's 5 feet tall, so he's, he's got some steps on her. So she was closer to me, he was further away, and she turned back to me, and she sort of mouthed and whispered at the same time, thank you very much. She said, everybody's afraid of him, but I would love for us to come to your church one day. So I told her my name, I said, let me know if you have any questions, gave her a card too. And she thanked me, and then she left. And I have interactions like this a lot, and I have to tell you, it makes me sad when people think that church is only about rules and proper behavior and judgmental people. That's why we made it one of our goals here at Hammock Street to build a community that is not in any way like that. But I understand how he felt because the sad truth is that the gravitational pull of religion is usually toward some sort of behavioral Conformity. So many churches are laser focused on if you're going to be a part of this church, you need to learn the way we do things around here. And you can usually feel that the moment you walk into the room. I felt it when I first started going to church. As I've told you before, I didn't grow up in the church. So when I first started walking into the church, I didn't know anything. I didn't know if there was a special place I needed to sit. I didn't know when to stand up. I didn't know what to wear. I didn't know any of the songs. I didn't know what to sing. I didn't know when to sing. I didn't know if I could clap. I didn't know if I should put my hands in the air, if I should keep my hands in, the, in my pockets. I had so many questions. But after I'd been around for a while, I learned the do's and don'ts, and they, they stopped seeming so weird and so odd and so foreign to me. And before too long, all those peculiar church rules sort of disappeared. They felt harmless. But some of those rules were not harmless. Over time, every community develops its own way of doing things, and we do that too. But sadly, sometimes along with that, develops some kind of condemnation for anybody who doesn't do it right, for anybody who does things differently. Well, things were no different in Jesus' day. So he addressed that phenomenon in his ministry, and he addressed it in no uncertain terms. So one day Jesus said this, and it completely shocked his Jewish audience. Here's what he said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Now, I don't know how that hits your ear, but I do know how it hit the ear of the first century Jews. It shocked them. See, here's how it went down. To the Jews in the first century and to observant Jews today, people, Jewish people who observe the 613 halakhic laws that they believe is set forth in the Torah, the Sabbath was absolutely central. Sabbath observance is one of the things that sets Jewish people apart from the rest of their culture. In my neighborhood, every Friday night, Sabbath begins on Friday night at sundown, it continues all the way through Saturday until sundown. In Friday night and Saturday in my neighborhood, all the religious Jews, all the Orthodox Jews walk, they don't drive, they're not allowed to drive, they walk to the synagogues that are close by. So they're separated from the rest of the culture, and you cannot miss it. Now, it's one of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's the Fourth Commandment. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, keeping the Sabbath was non-negotiable. Nowadays, and if you know Jewish people, most Jewish people are not religious, and so they don't keep a Sabbath like that. They'll still go to the grocery store, drive, do soccer games, things like that. Back in Jesus' day, though, nobody did that. The Sabbath, observance of the Sabbath was not negotiable. And they would speak about Sabbath observance as being so directly connected to the holiness of God that a Jewish person did not dare violate the Sabbath. But then Jesus came along, and he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That turned the rule on its head. Jesus told the people, God did not create the Sabbath and demand that his people keep it in order to please himself. Jesus told them that God created the Sabbath and told his people to keep it in order for them to be able to reap the benefits of Sabbath rest for themselves. That's why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. And as it so happens, what was true of the Sabbath was true of the entire law. But the religious people in that culture, and sadly the religious people in modern cultures, well, the people back then got it backwards. A pastor friend of mine explains it this way. I love this explanation. He said, think of it this way. Nobody has children so that there's someone to play with the toys, right? You don't go out and buy toys and then say, well, we've got to get some kids now because no one's going to play with these toys, right? Toys are for the benefit of the children, not the other way around. So back to Jesus. Jesus was pointing out that God did not create us so that there would be somebody to keep his rules. God's rules, God's commands are for God's people because God is for God's people. And more specifically, God is for you. Now let me put it another way. God loves you more than God loves his commandments. And when you get that out of order, people get hurt. When somehow you believe that the point is the rule and not the people, people get hurt. And sadly, religious leaders have leveraged this backwards for generations. And we're going to see today how Jesus waded into this tension and he stirred everything up 
And it ended up with him hanging on a Roman cross because he refused to blindly continue along with the way that the religious people misapplied his father's words. Whenever religious leaders use the law of God to manipulate or to bully people made in the image of God, Jesus didn't hesitate to point that out to them. He didn't hesitate to point out the error of their ways. And when I think about it, that might be the reason why that guy in Publix had such a hard time even considering Jesus. So my prayer is that today's study will move everyone to begin to re-examine the religious paradigm that you may have been operating under for a long time and that you would come to understand just how much your heavenly Father loves you and what life in God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus came to introduce, should look like. Today, this brings us to part three of this series that we're in, You're Not Far. So let's pray real quick and jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this study of Peter's words as written down by Mark. God, use it to transform our hearts and minds and draw us closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So brief, brief uh, summary in this series, kind of looking at the story of Jesus as told by Jesus' most famous apostle, Simon Peter, the guy we know of as just Peter. While Peter was imprisoned by the Roman emperor Nero, shortly before Nero would take his life, take Peter's life, Peter told his full story to a guy named John Mark. And John Mark wrote it down. He recorded it in the gospel that we call the Gospel of Mark. Now, as we've seen over the past two weeks, Peter conveyed to Mark a very simple message. Jesus repeated his message many times, and he repeated it in front of thousands and thousands of people. Everywhere Jesus went, Jesus taught, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near to us, which means you're not far from it. Peter told us that Jesus wanted people to turn, that's what repent means, to turn and face and embrace this new way of living, this new kingdom, this new way of relating, relating to this new way of understanding God the Father, to turn toward this new kind of love that he was introducing to the world. Here's the map we've been looking at this series. If you look up on top, you'll just see the Galilee region, that's where all of this right now up until this point was taking place. And Jesus was up making his way around the small fishing villages located around the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret. And by that point, he had called four followers already, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they went into the big city of Capernaum. And when they went in, they saw somebody that Peter knew. It was a tax collector whose name was Levi, but we know him by his Greek name, Matthew. And in spite of the fact that Peter was disgusted by the sight of the guy, remember he was a tax collector, and Jews considered tax collectors to be blood traders, to be swindlers, and to be thieves. Those were their good qualities. Jesus walked up to this guy, to this Matthew guy, and he said, follow me. And as we discussed, it didn't sit well with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they were certainly thinking to themselves, boss, if he's going to follow you, we're not sure we want to stay with you. That guy is a sleazeball, and everybody around here knows it. So they had a decision to make. Was Jesus going to keep on inviting just anybody to follow him? Or was he really going to turn back and stick to the good people? They weren't the only people to wonder this. 
This offended the religious leaders. It offended the community leaders. It offended the patriots among them. They were called the zealots. Anyway, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a decision to make. But the truth is they'd seen too much and they knew too much about Jesus to walk away from him. So they decided to stay. So Matthew, Levi, got up and followed Jesus. And while Peter didn't tell us exactly what was said next, we can imagine that that Matthew started following Jesus. And it's not unreasonable to surmise that Matthew might have asked Jesus, "Uh, okay, so where are we going? To which Jesus, very possibly with a smile on his face, replied, I was thinking your house. Oh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had to be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. It's bad enough we have to hang out with this guy. Let's go to his house. Why am I guessing that that's what they were thinking? As here's the next verse. <clears throat> While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, right? That's the next verse. Follow me, they're at his house. Having dinner at someone's house was a very intimate event and was very much filled with symbolism. And it made a very public statement. It's not like it is today. Today, we barely know our neighbors. Do you guys all know your neighbors? Some do. Some are better about it than others. I met my neighbors during the last big hurricane. We spent time together. We barbecued, cooking all the meat before it rotted, stuff like that. As soon as the power came back on, I haven't talked to them since. It's true. But back in those days, everybody knew their neighbors. Everybody knew what everybody else was up to. Having someone at your home for a meal, that implied acceptance. And for the disciples, things were only going to get worse. Because it wasn't just the five of them eating with Jesus. Look at this, verse 15, we continue. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who had followed him. See, by this time, everybody's beginning to follow Jesus. And he was even being followed by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. Because the things he was teaching were so incredibly disruptive to their power and their control and to their way of life that they had to keep an eye on him. So they followed Matthew. They followed Matthew and Jesus and the whole bunch of them to Matthew's house. But the religious people wouldn't dare go into Matthew's house. Why not? Because that would have made them unclean. You can't go into the house of a sinner. It makes you ceremonially unclean. And if you're ceremonially unclean, you need to go bathe. You need to be baptized, essentially. You need to go into the mikvah and say a few prayers so you're ceremonially clean. And then you can go back into the religious community. So they followed, but they stopped outside the house. But when they were outside the house, they were still expressing their displeasure with Jesus. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he do that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? While Jesus paid those wretched sinners attention, at the same time, he was ignoring these self-proclaimed godly people, these self-righteous Pharisees, and they weren't happy about it. They weren't used to being ignored. They were used to being listened to. And they made sure that everybody who was within earshot knew that they were unhappy. Well, of course, Jesus heard what they were saying as well. And would you believe it? Jesus did not apologize. He didn't issue an apology. He didn't tweet out an apology. No, instead... Jesus kept on going. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Now consider that for a second. While Jesus was sitting in Matthew's house, Matthew the tax collector, surrounded by all of Matthew's tax collector friends and all of Matthew's other sinner friends, in response to the self-righteous religionists, Jesus called the tax collectors and the sinners sickos. And they're like, yeah, wait a minute, what? But they didn't disagree with him. Instead, they acknowledged what they were. They knew what they were. And they recognized that they needed to change. They just didn't know how. And now think about this. Up until that moment, it's very likely that Matthew figured he'd already ruined his relationship with his community. He ruined his relationship with his whole family. He'd embarrassed them. He brought shame upon them. He deceived them. He'd stolen from them. His only hope was to make a ton of money and maybe leave it to somebody who would appreciate it. Maybe leave it to somebody who would do some good with it. He wasn't ever going to be remembered, and he certainly wasn't going to be remembered favorably. He would just become another nameless traitor, like so many others. But in that moment, Matthew had a shot at redemption. If he decided to open his heart and his mind to Jesus and truly follow him with his life, his bleak future prospects would disappear, and they would be replaced with a life of hope and an eternity wrapped in the arms of a loving father. And it was all available to him if he would acknowledge in his heart and mind that he was indeed a sinner in need of a savior. Now think about what you're going to do with this story. What hangs in the balance of your decision to admit that you need help? See, there's no way you can know for sure. But there is one thing that's guaranteed. You've been given the same opportunity as Matthew. You've been invited to become a part of God's family. And what awaits you is freedom and forgiveness and peace and a different level of relationship that at this very moment, you have no idea what it's about. But you'll never know until you answer Jesus' invitation. Every single day of your life, there's an open invitation from your Savior to follow him into that kind of freedom and into that kind of new life. And you'll never know what you'll miss until you say yes to Jesus. All right, let's keep going on the story. So on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus continued, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The Greek actually gives us a bit of a clearer picture. Jesus is saying, in essence, I didn't come here to reach out to the righteous. Now remember, Peter and the fellas were looking down there own self-righteous noses at the likes of Matthew and at the likes of Matthew's buddies. And they thought, at least in comparison to these tax collectors, we're pretty righteous. They thought we're pretty good people. So Peter must have been thinking, but, but Jesus, but if Jesus didn't come to reach out to the righteous, and he reached out to me and my brother Andrew and our buddies James and John, then that means that he must think we're, hey, Jesus, are you implying that we're no different from those nasty tax collectors? To which Jesus would have replied, Pete? Rocky? His name was a nickname, Rocky. Now you're starting to get it. Everyone I call is a sinner. Now here's a little something that we miss. In ancient times, this is really interesting because we don't think of it this way. Religions didn't seek converts in ancient times. They didn't proselytize. They didn't evangelize. The Jews still don't evangelize to this day. In fact, if, if a non-Jewish person decides they want to convert to becoming a Jew, 
Tradition holds that the rabbi has to try to talk them out of it three times. Are you sure you want to do this? Let me show you Schindler's list. Are you sure you want to be a part of this? Are you sure you want to be Jewish? Three times. In fact, the gods of the pagan religions were nothing like the one true God, the God we know. Their gods were sort of pick and choose gods. Peter would essentially, people would essentially choose to believe in whatever God they needed. They're having a harvest. They pray to the God of the harvest and so on. If they wanted luck, they pray to the God of good fortune. If they wanted to be rich, they pray to the God of wealth. No one converted from one pagan religion to another. If anything, what people did is collected gods. They accumulated more gods if they desired more favorable results. But Jesus came along with this new approach, and he invited people to leave or to abandon their previous understanding of gods and embrace something they'd never seen before. And the reason Jesus invited Matthew as well as Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the reason that the invitation is also extended to me and also extended to you is because the wait is over and the time has come. Every pagan religion, every cult, even the religion of Judaism has pointed to a time when God was going to reveal himself in such a way that the entire world would be invited into a new kind of kingdom. A kingdom of the heart, a kingdom of conscience. And that's what Jesus was there to do. Here's what Jesus said. As we've read before, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near, which means that you are not far from it. Everyone is just one turn, one decision, one shift in mindset away from becoming a part of that kingdom. So repent. So turn and embrace the new kingdom ushered in by Jesus. Jesus' pursuit of sinners, Jesus' pursuit of the unrighteous showed just how revolutionary this new kingdom of God would be. Jesus was sent to earth for everyone, and he went out of his way to invite people in. So to make certain that readers understood, Peter moved from this incident at Matthew's house to one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. Remember, we talked about this. Peter jumped around quite a bit. Now, in order to impress upon his disciples and the Pharisees who were close by just how new his message was, just how he intended to not merely tinker with the status quo, but to blow it up, but to usher in a new way of understanding the new kingdom of God that arrived among them, Jesus explained things like this. Here's what Jesus said. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Huh? All right, let's look at this. In those days, unlike today, there was no shine, there was no timu, there were no inexpensive clothing on Amazon brands. Okay, there were, the clothing wasn't disposable. You didn't give clothing away. Back in those days, clothing was an asset. It was valuable. It was a commodity. Clothes were expensive. People didn't just throw them away. They wore their clothes for years, and they mended them as necessary, and they expanded them as necessary. So when something was torn, nobody threw it away. They repaired it. They patched it. And so everyone knew that if you used a new piece of cloth on an old garment, we continue on in Mark 2.21, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. People understood that. Jesus kept going with a similar analogy. Here's what he said next. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Okay, so they contained wine. They kept wine in these leather bags. You know, you've seen them before maybe in movies. Maybe you've had one yourself. 
And over time, they got stretched out and they became a little brittle. Old leather gets brittle. And if you put a new patch on it, what happens? Verse 22, we continue. The wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. And the people understood that too. Jesus' unique teaching, Jesus' new worldview was like new cloth and new wine. The torn cloth and the burst wineskins exemplified the impossibility of trying to blend Jesus' new message with their first century understanding of Judaism. Jesus was telling them, I didn't come to try to blend anything together. I've come to fulfill the old laws and usher in my new kingdom and my new way of understanding things here on earth. It would be impossible for you to take the things that I'm teaching and try to squeeze them into the way that you currently do things. The community I'm building is nothing like you've ever seen before. That's why you have to pour new wine into new wineskins. And if the teaching, the message, and the worldview of Jesus was the new wine, his community, his ecclesia, us, we would be the new wineskin. Jesus would frequently talk about it in terms of the kingdom of God, and eventually he would announce to his disciples, this thing that I'm doing in your midst will be nothing like you've ever seen before, and nothing is ever going to be able to stop it. And folks, as a part of this community here at Hammock Street, that's what we're a part of. At Hammock Street, we're the container. We, the local church, are the framework for this teaching of Jesus. But Peter wasn't done, so he waded into another Sabbath controversy. While he was still in Capernaum, Jesus went into the synagogue, Mark 3.1, where he encountered a man with a shriveled hand. That sounds weird. What is that? It just refers to a guy who injured his hand in some way. Healthcare wasn't then what it's like today. His hand never healed right, so he couldn't use it. It was rendered useless. And as the crowd began to gather around Jesus, the man somehow let Jesus see his arm. You know? Hoping Jesus might help him. Now, it's apparent that the other people in the synagogue knew the man. They knew of his condition. Peter explained how, in verse 2, some of the people were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Why? Because their first century application of the law of Moses deemed that it was a sin to heal or help somebody on the Sabbath. Interestingly, they were permitted to save somebody's life in an emergency, but they couldn't provide any medical attention in a situation like this. So Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now imagine this poor guy's embarrassment. He had to stand up in front of everyone, putting this this shriveled hand on public display. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. Please don't miss it. It's these incredibly detailed events that help us to be able to believe in the absolute truth of these stories, the absolute truth of Scripture. And then Jesus turned to the crowd, especially to the Pharisees in the crowd, and he asked them, he said, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Now, Jesus never asked a question that he didn't know the answer to. This was a loaded question. And Jesus is really asking them, what is the purpose? Why did God give us this law? Why did God give us all these rules? Was it just to preserve the rules? Or was there another reason? And while they were searching for an answer, they weren't really going to answer him, but they pretended. Jesus asked it in another way. Mark 3, verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? What's Jesus getting at? What he's getting at takes us back to the first verse that we looked at this morning. Jesus is giving an illustration of what he just taught them. Is the law for the benefit of God 
or is it for the benefit of God's beloved creation, of God's image bearers? Is it for the benefit of us? Is it for the benefit of man? Now, up until this morning, what did you think the purpose of God's laws was? Most people would have guessed that the laws are there for the benefit of God. If I follow the laws, God will be happy with me. So Jesus' question represents a huge shift in thinking, a huge paradigm shift. Because if the laws are for the benefit of the people that God loves, then people take precedence over the law. Children aren't for the toys. The toys are for the children. Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or or evil, to save a life or to kill? They knew the right answer, but if they answered correctly, then they would be giving Jesus permission to pursue this new path that would be so disruptive to them. So what did they say back to him? Not one word. Peter said it. They remained silent. And how did Jesus respond? Well, how would you answer this question? How does your heavenly father respond to people who apply God's law in a way that hurts the people whom God loves? How does Jesus respond when religious leaders use the law of God to hurt the people made in the image of God? Verse 5 tells us Jesus looked at them in anger. He was ticked. And why was he angry? Because the religious leaders used the Father's words in a way that elevated the Father's words over the people whom the Father loved. Jesus looked at them looked around them in anger and was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Peter finishes up the story. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored and that made the Pharisees lose their minds. So they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That is mental. They wanted to murder a rabbi just because he healed on the Sabbath. But in a way, they understood what Jesus was up to. They could see how there was legitimately no way to blend the way that they were focused on living with the new way that Jesus was introducing to the world. And sadly, they would still insist upon doing it, as would countless other religious people from that moment until today. But there was no way to mix rules and practices that they were trying to preserve with the kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. Jesus had come to reverse the order of almost everything. God gave the Sabbath. God gave the laws. God gave the rules for the benefit of mankind and not for his own benefit. God is like a good parent. He loves you more than he loves his rules. From there, Peter took us through a few more narratives, all of which occurred up there in the Galilee region. And then the weirdest thing happened. And we're wrapping up. For the first time in Peter's account, suddenly we see Mary, mother of Jesus. She just shows up. She just shows up outside of Capernaum along with Jesus' brothers. And they tried to take Jesus home. And then she said something about her son, something that I think some of you parents have said about some of your children too. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. And I'm guessing that when Peter was telling this part of the story to Mark, Mark was like, dude, are you sure you want me to keep this in there? And Peter was like, I'm just telling you what happened. Mary and his brothers showed up, and they were trying to rescue Jesus from the situation that he put himself in. The crowd was hostile, and they were trying to bring him back home. And when, when, we, when they asked Mary, why are you doing this? Here's what she answered, because he's out of his mind. 
That's what Mary said about Jesus. You ever say that about your kids? That's not nice, Mary. And why is it even in Mark's gospel? Because it actually happened. If you're making this up, you wouldn't have kept it in there. And we'll pick up the story right there next time in part four of You're Not Far. But before we go, two quick takeaways. One, if you're a sinner, and you are, you're invited to follow Jesus beginning right now, beginning today. If you're willing to acknowledge, like Matthew acknowledged, that there's something wrong with you, that you can't fix on your own, if you recognize that you need help, that you need a Savior, you're invited to begin today, right now, to start following Jesus. So right where you're sitting, you can go to God and in your heart and mind tell him, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior. And then tell God that you know that Jesus is the Savior as he showed us by his life, death, and resurrection. When someone predicts their own resurrection and they pull it off, you should listen. Tell God that you want to turn from your sin and turn to him, and you'll follow him with all your heart for the rest of your life. Number two, if you're already a follower of Jesus, you can go to God right now and let him know that from this moment on, you're going to lean even more into following him as you enjoy the abundant, the eternal, the blessed life that God has already given you. Tell him that. Even though you might have been lukewarm in the past, that now you're in. You're all in. God loves you, and God's called you to a different way of life, and this is a new start for all of us as the school year begins. God's called you into this new way of looking at the world. Following Jesus will make your life better, and it will make you better at life, not just because you believe something, but because you've acted on it by trusting him and by putting every aspect of your life under his care. Levi, Matthew, said yes to Jesus, and he eventually got the opportunity to write one of the Gospels. And in Matthew's Gospel, we learned that one day Jesus was teaching, and he said this, and this is for all of us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You and I have a yoke. You and I have a way of doing life. You and I have a way of approaching the world. And Jesus said, I want you to put yours down, I want you to take mine on. I want you to learn from me, and I want you to live from me. It's a better yoke than ours is. And if we will do that, we'll find rest for our souls. We'll find a peace that we won't even be able to comprehend. And if that version of faith conflicts with the version of faith that you might have been exposed to in the past, maybe they were trying to pour the new wine of Jesus into an old wineskin. The faith the followers of Jesus is better than anything the world can offer you. The kingdom of God has come near and you're not far. And God's invitation to you and God's invitation to me is to turn and face it and embrace it. Because when we do, life begins to change. Amen? Amen. See you next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this life that you've offered us. God, we can't wait to see what you'll do as we lean into being your people. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.